Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News, and I'm your host for these conversations. It's the height of summer, a time when school is typically the last thing on most people's minds. But as the coronavirus pandemic rages across the country, with no seeming end in sight, the question of whether schools are going to be able to fully reopen, if they can do so safely, and what the coming school year will look like for students, teachers, staff members, and families is on everyone's minds. Some school districts have already made their decision, but for many, the plan is still evolving. How to safely reopen our schools is a difficult question with no easy answers. But that's the question we're going to focus on in this episode of the Ostrom Update. We'll also get an assessment of the current situation in the United States and answer a listener email. But as he does every episode, Dr. Osterholm will start with a dedication. Well, thank you, Chris, and uh, welcome to all the listeners today. Uh, particularly a welcome to those who might be new to this podcast and a very warm uh, uh, thank you for returning for all those who are with us today who have been on previous podcasts, as I've said often and uh, continue to say with deep appreciation. We know that you have many other sources of information that you can go to, and so spending time with us here uh, means a lot to us, and uh, we uh, sure appreciate it. I also want to just make a note that I can't begin to thank all of you for the kind comments, uh, thoughtful comments, uh, very instructive comments that you send to us uh, each week. Uh, as I noted in previous podcasts, we try to read all of them, uh, and uh, I try to respond to as many as I can. Unfortunately, I'm now in the thousands of emails a day uh, stage, and it makes it tough to get back to all of you. But uh, Thank you, and we are listening. Uh, we do hear you, and we're all trying to learn from you. So my my deepest appreciation and thank you. In terms of a dedication, uh, it was pretty easy to think about uh, who I should dedicate this one to. Uh, today we're talking about schools, the reopening of schools, and uh, I can't help but focus on all the kids, uh, all the way in those even in daycare to uh, uh, K-12, uh, Thank you for uh, what you bring to our lives. Uh, you are our future, and uh, I hope we're doing right by you and what's happening right now. So I dedicate this podcast to you and hoping that we get it right. One day when history looks back on us, uh, we will have said we did the best we could to make it right by the kids. Mike, to use your analogy, the forest fire in this country continues to rage. And this is leading to new calls for lockdowns like we experienced in March and April in some of the hardest hit cities and states. Is that the best option we have right now for reducing the number of cases we're seeing? Unfortunately, we're continuing the uh, trend that we talked about last week of increasing number of cases. I, I always find it uncomfortable to talk about cases like this because it sounds so analytical. It sounds like I should be an auditor not an epidemiologist. And so I just want to remind everyone, we at CIDRAP completely appreciate and with great reverence the fact that all these numbers that we talk about are people. They are loved ones. They are those who we've worked with, we care about, we know. And so um, I'm, I 
I just want everyone to remember that when we talk about these numbers, I hope we do it with a certain amount of sensitivity at the same time, uh, looking at them as very important indicators of what we're doing or not doing. Uh, you know, I tend to be one of those people that uh, believe that it's always good to look in your rearview mirror as much as you look in your windshield in terms of remembering where you came from. Uh, and when you look at what's happened with the number of cases of COVID-19 in recent days, it's a very sob sobering look through the windshield and through the rearview mirror. Uh, this past Monday, uh, the world hit uh, officially 13 million cases. Now, we know that there are many, many, many more uh, SARS-CoV-2 infections out there that aren't detected, either as clinical cases because they weren't tested or because of being mild to asymptomatic infections. But if you just use clinical cases being detected as kind of the tip of the iceberg to give you a sense of the relative piece of the iceberg under the water level that's there, in other, in other words, all the infections, it took 100 days for the global tally to hit 1 million cases. Then as cases continued to occur, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 transmission continued to accelerate. It then took only, uh, in recent weeks, 10 days to go from 5 million to 6 million infections, and only took six days to go from 8 million to 9 million infections. And when you look at the speed at which this is increasing, um, it becomes clear and evident that uh, we are really facing a very major point of what's going to happen with this virus in the world. Um, if you look in the United States, um, we have seen this major escalation of cases that continues. Um, some have speculated the southern states where the case numbers have been so high will peak in the next two to three weeks. Um, that's surely a possibility. I would say that... Um, um, there's still many, many people left in those areas to get infected, and so it doesn't mean that necessarily it will peak, given that we're also still seeing lots of what I would call high-risk behavior uh, groups and together, both indoors and outdoors, in ways that uh, might very well continue the transmission. If you look at just what's happened in Florida, Texas, and California, yesterday, there were over 30,000 cases reported just in those three states. That was 18% of the entire world's total, just those three states. That should tell you where we're at. If you look at new cases, uh, as of uh, yesterday, uh, the case numbers are 61,492 new cases. Uh, the seven-day total, meaning the seven-day moving average, was 60,251. Uh, that means that new cases are still bringing that seven-day average up, and we could expect to see that number continue to climb. In part, it's a function of just testing capacity right now to be able to catch up with the actual infected cases getting tested. Also, another very disturbing trend is if you look at the number of deaths, the seven-day moving average of deaths was 724 yesterday. That surely is down from the high seven-day reading of April 16th, where there was 2,228 cases. Yesterday, 724. But when you look at the fact that just a few days ago, July 5th, the seven-day moving average is 471. So we've gone up from 471 to 724, and that number appears to be increasing substantially. 
it's clear that this number, as it increases, is likely to increase substantially more because of the fact that we have overrun a number of our intensive care units around the country. And in fact, uh, we're hearing reports now of just real challenges finding an adequate number of medical personnel with training in intensive care medicine, whether they be physicians, nurses, or other critical healthcare providers in the hospital setting to actually be there. So if we can open up more beds, so be it, but does that really make a difference? We're witnessing a uh, absence of remdesivir uh, in many locations that had it prior to this because we've just run out uh, and supplies will be in short supply for some time to come. So I can only uh, predict that over the course of the next seven to 10 days, the number of deaths is going to increase uh, substantially uh, over what we see here and that we, in fact, shouldn't be surprised by that. What is really the question is, what are we doing nationally? And we've talked about these hotspots, but if you look at the number of states and the District of Columbia, 51 different units here, 39 right now are continuing to see increases in cases, of which over half are seeing major increase in cases. Only 10 have been level for the last 7 to 14 days. And even there, as I talked about last week, an increasing number are starting to trend towards higher cases. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if next week that number was down in the six or seven range with and some of those states bumping up. And only two continue to see decreasing cases, Maine and New Hampshire. This really tells us that this is more and more a national forest fire that is burning hotter and hotter. And I don't know what is going to change the course of this unless we make some really critical decisions that we're going to have to lock down the economy in some way. And I know that term is like nails on a chalkboard for many. I understand that. It's horrible. It's people's livelihoods. It's their jobs. Uh, it's their ability to socialize and don't want to minimize that. But I don't know any other way to really bring this virus activity level down to a point of where we're not overrunning our intensive care units. And you can say, well, it hasn't happened in my location, but it is going to happen in more and more locations. We're beginning to see more rural areas experiencing the same ICU overload. And so from my perspective, it is we have a second chance to get it right. A second chance meaning that the first time we locked down, we didn't lock down long enough. We didn't lock down in a more comprehensive manner. And we started to release the population back out into everyday life long before we should have, or as other countries have demonstrated, needs to be done in order to hold this virus activity at bay with testing and contact tracing once you get it to a certain minimal level. I think the state of New York surely has continued to be our model in that regard in the United States. They seem to be doing it as well as anyone. We'll learn from them over the days ahead. Uh, you know, just how well it can be contained by trying to keep the foot on the brake, sometimes applying a little bit harder, sometimes taking it off, but not this idea that the entire house is on fire. So we'll have to see. And I think that at this point, uh, if we don't see one unified approach from around the country, it's going to make it more difficult for state-by-state -state efforts to accomplish uh, the reduction of cases, and then to make certain that new cases don't come into the state at large numbers. 
Uh, I thought it was quite uh, interesting today. I never, ever thought about this. But my own state of Minnesota was added to the quarantine list with the state of New York. Um, and uh, we now are not able to go out there without a 14-day quarantine. Um, I never thought I'd see the day that that would happen right in our own country. Now, whether it's effective or not or can be effective is a whole other discussion. But the bottom line is that the message is there. And so I can only hope that we have national leadership that will come together and say we need a national policy. We need a national approach. And it can be targeted. It can be tailor-made for locals. But with the overarching indication of what we're trying to do, we're trying to knock this virus down to a point where we can then control it with testing and tracing. It has been done successfully in other countries. Uh, and, and if we don't learn from those, I don't know if we'll ever have a third chance. I think that it's going to be a situation where the number of cases will only continue to increase. And uh, I fear that we're going to get closer and closer to that herd immunity number of 50 to 70 percent, but not because of vaccine, but because we got there the most painful and deadly way possible. And that was not controlling this pandemic. One day, I am certain, as much as I dedicated this podcast to the kids, those kids, when they're adults, are going to be looking back and saying, what did my parents and grandparents do? Why did they let this happen? We will be written up in history for what we do and don't do over the weeks ahead. And uh, I can only imagine the number of cases and the number of deaths if we don't do something different and how that will play out in history. It will be cruel. And so surely not meaning hyperbole here. I can't emphasize enough how critical I think this issue is right now. We have to lock down. And uh, I, for one, and, and again, I've said this before, I'm not an economist. I'm not uh, some financial wizard. That's the last thing I am. I'm more than willing as a nation, as a citizen of this nation, to put forward whatever support we can for those individuals who are harmed uh, financially in terms of small businesses, essential workers, uh, if we have to, uh, in fact, lay them off from their jobs. Uh, but we've got to get this virus under control. If we don't, it will, it will do what it's going to do. Uh, this is not an either or for us. We basically are going to get hit by this unless we do something very different. As noted in the opening, our focus this episode is on the reopening of schools, and we're going to use two listener emails to get into this topic. Just a note to our listeners that we've received a lot of emails on this question with a variety of different views, and these emails represent just two of those views. Kendra writes, I live in Santa Barbara, California, and I have two children ages seven and nine. Their school is planning on reopening on August 20th, and right now our cases and hospitalizations are going up in our county. I don't feel comfortable sending my kids to school. I can afford to stay home with them and teach them, and the school is offering an independent study program. Do you think I'm overreacting? Would you feel comfortable if your grandchildren went back to school in a hotspot like I am in now? I'm also worried about teachers at our school. Tony writes, The American Academy of Pediatrics has strongly encouraged the opening of schools. I personally have seen little evidence that shows schools shouldn't be reopened with minimal changes, if any. Our local school has proposed a hybrid schedule, where elementary school children will be in school for only two half days. The remainder of time, they'll be doing distance learning. From a general public health standpoint, isn't it safer for the community to have children in school full-time versus this hybrid approach? So, Mike, I know you've been thinking about this issue a lot, and there's so much to consider. Where do we even begin? I can say without any question that this has been the most difficult topic that uh, I, I've 
dealt with in terms of this whole COVID-19 pandemic. Um, it is at the first instance, something very near and dear to my heart as I have five grandchildren, of which three are in school, two in daycare. And I understand the uh, issue from a very personal standpoint. Uh, I can't tell you how many agonizing discussions I've had with my family, my kids uh, and other family members about this very issue. Uh, at the same time, I also recognize that how we deal with this school issue is probably going to be one of the defining moments of how we learn to live with COVID-19. And I want to say at the outset, uh, I'm probably going to disappoint a number of you today because I'm not going to come and give you a, a black and white answer. Rather, I'd like to start a dialogue about this. I will go into as much detail as I can in a reasonable amount of time on the issues related to this. But I am convinced that very well-meaning people with very thoughtful considerations will come at very different conclusions about what to do and how to do it. And I think we need to respect all of these. Uh, there are very real differences of how we might approach this and why we might approach it differently. And some of it will be from where you sit. Are you at risk yourself uh, in terms of the child? Are you a family member? Are you a teacher? And so I, I just hope that we can have a very respectful conversation trying to understand each other. And I don't think there is a single answer. I think there are going to be multiple answers to this, and it's going to be up to our creativity to deal with this. But the one overriding factor that we can never forget. This is about our kids. <laughs> and I hope that uh, in the course of this discussion, we never forget that, that this isn't about me. This isn't about you. This isn't about uh, so many of the other aspects of what's going on in our communities right now. At the first instance, it's about our kids. And hopefully we can keep that front and center. Now, to start out with, let me just say that uh, there was a new updated statement that's come out uh, on July 10th from four different groups who merged their comments together. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics, as you all know, representing pediatricians in this country. The American Federation of Teachers, which uh, represent 1.7 million pre-K through 12th grade teachers, paraprofessionals, other school-related personnel. The National Education Association, which is the nation's largest professional employee organization representing more than 3 million elementary and secondary teachers, higher ed faculty, etc. And the School Superintendents Association, which represents more than 13,000 education leaders in the U.S. and throughout the world. As a common statement, I think it would be helpful to read this because I think you're seeing a merging of mutual interests and concerns into what I think is a very thoughtful statement. July 10th, science and community circumstances must guide decision-making. Funding is critical. The American Academy of Pediatrics, American Federation of Teachers, National Education Association, and AASA, the School Superintendents Association, joined together today in the following statement on the safe return of students teachers, and staff to schools. Educators and pediatricians share the goal of children returning safely to school this fall. 
Our organizations are committed to doing everything we can so that all the students have an opportunity to safely resume in-person learning. We recognize that children learn best when physically present in the classroom, but children get much more than academics at school. They also learn social and emotional skills at school, get healthy meals and exercise, mental health support, and other services that cannot be easily replicated online. Schools also play a critical role in addressing racial and social inequality. Our nation's response to COVID-19 has laid bare inequalities and consequences for children that must be addressed. This pandemic is especially hard on families who rely on school lunches, have children with disabilities, or lack access to internet or health care. Returning to school is important for the healthy development and well-being of children, but we must pursue reopening in a way that is safe for all students, teachers, and staff. Science should drive decision-making on safety reopening schools. Public health agencies must make recommendations based on evidence, not politics. We should leave it to health experts to tell us when the best time is to open up school buildings and listen to educators and administrators to shape how we do it. Local school leaders, public health experts, educators, and parents must be at the center of decisions about how to and when to reopen schools, taking into account the spread of COVID-19 in their communities and the capacities of school districts to adapt safety protocols to make in-person learning safe and feasible. For instance, schools in areas with high levels of COVID-19 community spread should not be compelled to reopen against the judgment of local experts. A one-size-fits-all approach is not appropriate for return to school decisions. Reopening schools in a way that maximizes safety, learning, and the well-being of children, teachers, and staff will clearly require substantial new investments in our schools and campuses. We call on Congress and the administration to provide the federal resources needed to ensure that inadequate funding does not stand in the way of safely educating and caring for children in our schools. Withholding funding from schools that do not open in person full-time would be a misguided approach, putting already financially strapped schools in an impossible position that would threaten the health of students and teachers. The pandemic has reminded so many what we have long understood, that educators are invaluable in children's lives and that attending school in person offers children a wide array of health and educational benefits. For our country to truly value children, elected leaders must come along to appropriately support schools and safely returning students to the classroom and reopening schools. End of statement. I think this statement says it as well as anything I could say and why I elected to read it into the record here with you. A couple of points come home, I think, in this message. Number one is there is no one way. Anyone that purports that there is just one way to do this, whether it's all in person, whether it is in some cases uh, in classroom for some, not for others, it's going to be a local decision. I have had the opportunity to examine closely uh, data now from three different surveys done in school districts in different locations. And what I was struck by was the uniformity of the response of parents when asked by the school district, do they want to have their child in an in-school learning situation or not? A third of the parents were adamant about the fact that they wanted their children to go to school. Many of them acknowledged that it was of utter importance that that happened, not just for the child, but for the child's 
livelihood because the parents otherwise would not have work. They would lose their job. And that was a consequence that was absolutely uh, devastating for that family. A third of the additional parents said, under no condition will I send my kids to school. This is a dangerous situation. I don't feel safe sending my kids to school, and I won't. And a third of the parents said, please help us understand what we should do. Now, with that kind of decision-making going on in all of our homes right now, I hope we can all understand that this is the time for discussion, for tolerance, for understanding, for, in a sense, validating. People can have all these different kinds of feelings and that they are legitimate. Personally, I, I look at this and I do have a couple of responses to the statement from the four different organizations that would like to fine tune them or tweak that statement. Number one, we have to stop telling parents we can do this safely. And what I mean by that is that, yes, we wanna use that word. Yes, that's what we imply but nothing is safe in this world. If I put my child or my grandchild on a school bus today, there's nothing that says that that school bus can't be hit at an intersection by a semi and have some horrible outcome occur. Now, the risk is very, very, very low. But the bottom line is we have to acknowledge that this will not be a perfect response. There may be outbreaks that will occur in schools. There may be challenges with teachers or staff becoming infected. And we just have to understand that now. But what we can do is minimize, minimize that risk. And we can try to make it as safe as possible and tell people that's what we're trying to do. One of the lessons I've learned over the course of my 45 years in this business and many of those years as a state epidemiologist here in Minnesota, that as much as ep we as epidemiologists deal with risk, that is a two-number event. It's a numerator and it's a denominator. So is it one out of a million people have this chance of having something bad happen, or is it one out of five? And what kind of frequency are we talking about of serious outcomes? But when we talk about children, it's a one-number issue. It's a numerator. I've seen many times when a single child who becomes severely ill and unfortunately in some cases dies, the worst tragedy of all, that is what will drive or dictate public policy often for many, many, many other children. And so we have to anticipate now, and this is hard to talk about this, but we have to acknowledge we will not do this perfectly safe. We're going to do it as safely as we can. And I believe that that is the intention of everyone involved with this process. So how do I look at this issue? Well, I've kind of tried to put it in a priority buckets, you might say. Who should be at the very top of the importance pyramid? It's our kids. What is the safety of our kids? What is their risk from COVID? What's their risk of collateral damage from school cancellations? Given by age, how will they learn or not learn? How will this set them back? You know, I look at other activities with kids right now. I've shared this with you in previous uh, podcasts, but I just looked at the data last week for kids from week 10 to week 25 of the year for 2019 in Minnesota versus week 10 to week 25 of this year, meaning in March when the pandemic started. And if I look at those very same time periods, the number of doses of more 
measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine administered in the state of Minnesota was down by almost 25%. That was because kids just didn't get vaccinated. That is part of what we're talking about is helping to normalize their lives as much as we can. Because when, for example, kids don't get vaccinated, I worry desperately about a measles outbreak that could occur in this state over the next year that could far, far exceed the number of serious illnesses and deaths that COVID will bring. So we want to look at kids first, and I'll come back to them in a moment. The second of all, I think the second highest priority is the safety of the teachers, the staff, the administrators, the custodians, the bus drivers. When we look at that group who are highly committed, and I have talked to many teachers that want desperately to be back in the classroom, they miss their kids. They just miss their kids. And when you think about what they're up against, 57% of school teachers in this country and public schools are over age 40. 59% of private school teachers are over age 40. And a recent survey that just came out showed that up to a fourth of those may be at increased risk for having a serious illness once infected with SARS-CoV-2 virus and predisposed to dying. Now, obviously, we've had a number of essential workers who had to deal with this every day. People who had to go to work, they had no other choices. It was their livelihood. Uh, They were having all kinds of contact with the public. And we know they've paid a price. We know our healthcare workers have paid a price. I've talked about that many times on this podcast. I still am torn desperately when I hear about healthcare workers dying. So the challenge, though, if I'm a school teacher, I want to be with my kids, but I'm afraid to be with them. We have to acknowledge that. We have to understand that. It doesn't do any good just to ignore it and say, suck it up. That's not right. So we'll talk more about the staff. And then I think it's the families of kids and staff. We know that if these kids do come home with a virus that they picked up in school, even if it's rare, that might happen, even if the kids themselves don't get that sick, even if they don't transmit the virus readily. Now they're in a closed family setting. And for some families, uh, this was surely going to be a challenge. But if it's uh, younger parents and younger sibs, if there are any sibs at all at home, surely that poses less of a risk. But there's going to be kids coming home to multi-generational families living in apartments where three generations live together and where someone is going to be at very high risk for a severe outcome. We saw that in places like New York, where there it was the adult child living with their parents who went to work because they were an essential worker, came home, transmitted the virus to their parents, which then, as older and elderly individuals in the community, suffered severe disease and died. So we have to recognize the importance of the family and how we deal with that. And then finally, it's just the community in general. How do we respond to the community? How does this all fit in? And uh, I don't want to minimize that, uh, but that's the least of our concerns. And what I mean by that is is that I don't see major community implications for transmission. Uh, I still see the the real challenges are going to be in young adults. It's going to be in people who are outside socializing, et cetera. But we have to look at that. So where do we go with this? Well, first of all, I will be very clear from an epidemiologic standpoint, reopening schools in areas with high transmission is simply not realistic. 
Um, when the house is on fire, it's just a real challenge. The chances of schools amplifying transmission is likely to be considerably higher when there's major activity occurring in the community and workplaces, households, etc. And so it's going to be a natural spillover event. Kids, we know, do not get infected easier than adults or uh, even older children, but they do get infected and they can transmit the virus. We've seen that. But again, it's of often very, very low consequence. On the other hand, if you're one of those children who does develop a severe COVID infection uh, and you develop uh, what has become known as basically a Kawasaki disease-like picture, then in fact, uh, that is a real concern. So how do we decide when that is high risk? Do we have some kind of arbitrary cutoff? Do we have some well-decided cutoff that says it's high, moderate, or low? This is an area we have to define soon. And I think this is best left up to each school district in consultation with the teachers, family, uh, local uh, leaders, the medical community, all of them to decide that. This is where I do not believe that a national standard can be applied other than the fact recognizing that there will be this need for local uh, decision-making. Can we frame this conversation to suggest that action intervention needs to be taken now to help reduce activity and allow schools to open in a safer way. I have been saying over and over again, do you want to choose schools or do you want to choose bars and restaurants? And right now, as we continue to see the enhancement of transmission, uh, particularly in those indoor settings of bars and restaurants, uh, we have to ask ourselves, are we really that interested in getting schools up and going? And that's going to be a huge issue. So now I think we have to ask ourselves that hard question. Again, I'm all for helping however we can to support bars and restaurants, but we got to know that's a major enhancing factor. So what do we know about the safety of kids with COVID? Well, we know that severe outcomes do occur. They're rare. And, and this is the example where I talked about the numerator issue. It's not clear yet what role kids play in transmitting disease. I can tell you from looking at the influenza world, I've, they're like little viral reactors. In the winter, when they get infected with flu in the schools, they readily transmit it to all the other students, they transmit it to the teachers, and they take it home and transmit it to the parents. And that is often a major seeding event for a community-wide outbreak of influenza. We don't have the same outcomes for that with COVID. Uh, and so uh, we have to understand that, that we have some uh, advantage in terms of dealing with this in that regard. And I would suggest that, again, while any death in a child is a tragedy beyond description, I can't, I can't even imagine that in a parent. So far, the data would support that COVID-like transmission in children and serious illness has been less than we'd expect to see with seasonal influenza. Grant you, we've not gone through a school year yet. We've not had kids in school with, with virus circulating, but it surely seems that that's not a huge challenge. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves, if we see SARS-CoV transmission in our schools, what do we do? Will we shut down? Will we uh, have cohorted students into one classroom with one teacher in such a way that we can just isolate that group? But now's the time to make that decision. In addition, we have to f understand that we may only have limited timely testing 
in our communities is we're finding more and more situations where testing is taking many days to get a result back. And so we can't count on that. So again, our plans have to accommodate. What would we do if we suspected cases of COVID-19 in kids and potentially in, in the school staff, teachers, administration, et cetera? So that is another area. We also then have to look at the collateral damage from no school. I can tell you without any doubt from my own experience with my grandchildren, this has been a challenge. We know that younger children in particular have real trouble with distance learning. Uh, And in some cases, of course, that is related to also a lack of access. We know that special education and English language learners receive much less in-class instruction as they desperately need with online learning only. Um, We've clear evidence that in the younger children in particular, distance learning could spur disinterest among the students. And it could present a major challenge for families with limited internet access or lack of devices for kids to actually access the courses. They can't afford necessarily the computers that might be needed. So that is one area that we have to accommodate for, regardless of whether we open schools and have students on site or we don't. We have to understand what this means. We all recognize the emotional, social, mental, and physical health challenges of not having children in school. And I would suggest that those are even greater for the youngest children, those I would call basically in grade school. And how we set students back a year or more without that kind of interaction is still yet unclear. We're just beginning to learn that. And I'm afraid that we won't fully understand the damage of that situation for years to come. But it's real. Um, We know that we leave kids sometimes in harmful home environments for longer periods of time. We have limited access to meals for those who need them most. And so we have to understand why it's important to have kids in school. And one of the things I think that we we need to consider here is, in fact, a difference in ages in that what that means in terms of might we have different approaches for different ages. When we look at the issue of safety of faculty, staff, such as teachers at risk for severe infections, can we, in fact, base this on a, a, a self-reported at-risk picture where we don't hold uh, faculty to a strict medical standard, meaning that it's absolutely yes or no, you're at risk or you're not, but it also accommodates the fear. And I, I can't say this strong enough. This is real. These are really dedicated professionals who are frightened to be in these settings. That's not going to make for a good teaching experience. So do we do a, a hybrid program where we match up those teachers with those students whose parents do not want them in that building under any condition and make that the kind of educational online experience so that they both get to do the best they can under those conditions. And we also need to understand the issue of limited transportation options to school and, you know, making bus drivers essential, but how can we physically distance them is going to be really important. How we, in fact, Uh, try to minimize the number of students on buses. If we try to cohort them and cocoon them in rooms will be very important. 
And then, as I mentioned earlier, we do have the families of these kids and the staff, too. How do we consider their safety and concerns since school-acquired infections puts everyone in the household at risk? We understand in this multi-generational household issue that this is a class issue. It's about finances. It's about the resources there. It overlays uh, with this desperately needed issue around addressing racial and ethnic disparities. And so we will only make that matter worse if we don't try to accommodate these families where we have these kinds of household settings, which could put family members at greater risk. Um, one of the issues I've heard over and over again, and just this week I had a, a professional uh, who has several children who is desperate for school to start again because of the work setting as a single mom and said, basically, if we don't have school in the fall, I can't do this any longer. I'm going to have to take a leave of absence from work, for which then I won't have a paycheck because the only backup I have right now for my kids are my mom. And my mom has an underlying health condition and she's in her 60s. Now, imagine the struggle of that individual loving her children, caring about having a paycheck and loving her mother. We have to do what we can to help accommodate that. So in this case, she desperately wanted her kids to go to school. And I can't even say that it was without not some remorse, because I think she, her questions to me surely led me to believe that she was concerned about their health. But she also had to think about her mother's health and had to think about, well, I have a paycheck that I can even pay the rent. So we have to understand that there are going to be situations from a work setting standpoint where people are going to need to get an answer soon because they literally have their jobs hanging on that. So uh, we're going to have to also consider here about the issue of families that don't want their children in school and and under normal circumstances, it'd be like somebody who doesn't want their child you know, to get a vaccine. I might come down and say, well, they need to be there. I think to get us through this pandemic, let's give us this year. Let's be understanding. Let's be supportive. Let's not make people feel like somehow they're doing wrong by their children. Let's figure out the ways to accommodate each and every one, whether it's in class, whether it's hybrid, uh, some in class, some not. How do we bubble in the class? How do we actually get kids to and from school? How do we do in-home learning? And if we do, then how do we accommodate these other concerns? This is where we need to really go. But this is all going to come back to several things. One is, what is the difference in available funding? We have to understand if there was ever a time for our federal government to support education, it's right now because it's supporting our families. And, and you know, you all know I have been apolitical throughout my career. I have continued to serve my country the best I can or my state, whoever is in charge. But I can't implore enough right now for the need for federal leadership to do this because it will be the key difference whether we tear ourselves apart over this issue or we do the best we can. And I think we could be one day viewed as having risen to the occasion if those resources are there. Space. We have big space issues, but you know what? Can we do creative things? We've got a lot of empty buildings right now. Could schools take over some buildings where we basically reduce the crowding that these are buildings without anyone using them right now? How do we deal with rural versus urban settings? This is a huge issue. We know that. 
some people would say in rural settings, well, this isn't a problem for us. And maybe it isn't the same problem. But so then how can we have a standard that might put rural or urban centers in very different places? I think we can, we must. We have to look at the capacity of state and local health departments to help support anything that goes on in the schools. If you already have state and local health departments that are strung to the max, that have no ability to help respond if you start to see an outbreak, that's a challenge. How do we do that? So I think that what we need to do is, rather than just have the pros and cons of approaches needed here, we need to have the enlightenment of approaches. How do we do all of these things and get everybody through together? No one is left off the lifeboat. And that, to me is so different than are we going to open schools or not open schools? That is such a different dichotomy. So let's get that mindset now. Let's figure out how we're going to help everybody get through. So at this point, I would just say that age is going to be important. I don't think K through 6, they're not going to mask well. (laughs) They're not going to distance. Remote learning doesn't work for them well at all. In school, prioritization must be seen as what's really important. And for those parents who are afraid to let that happen, let's try the best we can to accommodate it. For teachers, let's try to cohort teachers with students who are there, who they themselves are not at increased risk of severe disease, and maybe cohort teachers who can do online education with those that are. When we get to middle schools and high schools, they are going to be able to use masks. They're going to be able to do distancing in a better way, although we all know how students at this age will clump together. Remote learning is something that's easier to do. Still not the best, but it's surely possible, particularly for those whose parents do not want them to be at school. I will say right now that if these kids are not in school, they will be together anyway. So if we're worried about transmission, I can't imagine, particularly in high school students, that they still will not have the same kind of contact out of school that they would have had in school. And so that has to be a consideration. I'll never forget, we had a large outbreak of bacterial meningitis in a Minnesota community some years ago. And I was in charge of this outbreak investigation, and it was serious. Uh, We had uh, nine students in one school, one eventually died. And we wanted to keep students in school, not away from that school, because we knew that the primary means for transmission was via saliva. And saliva was often swapped as such by sharing things like soda cans, uh, glasses, things like that. And, uh, but the parents insisted, so the school closed. And the next day, I actually have a picture of 12 young junior girls, junior high school girls, who were all sitting at one McDonald's all 12 of them, and they had two different uh, cups from the soda machine, and they were all sharing all the cups. I mean, talk about putting themselves at increased risk. They weren't at risk at school. They were at risk at home. So we need to also look at that piece. So let me just close here by saying I haven't given you a prescription yet. Next week, I'm prepared to give you more about, I want to talk about what is the real risk of kids? What do we know from studies that were done in other countries where they did go back to school? I can report just in general right now. It's doable. Uh, But I think the message we have to start building right now is we have to start building a message of understanding. We got to get away from this rigid, you're either in school, you get your money. If you're not, you're not. We have to acknowledge that 
students, parents of students, teachers, staff, all are going to have their own issues that they're going to bring to the table that are legitimate, that are necessary to be dealt with, and they won't be dealt with in a single way. This is where wisdom will take precedence over knowledge. And I think this is what I hope we can start to foster in this discussion. And we have to do it quickly. We all know school's coming. Uh, But I think right now we do it. And the last thing I would say is, please, please, I've never done this in my career, never. Please talk to your elected officials. I don't care what party they're from, wherever. The federal government has to help support this effort. It will not get done. It won't. And then, boy, what have we accomplished with that? So I hope that we can turn ourselves into advocates for schools and children in a way that one day, again, we can all look back and be very proud. We have another listener email this week, this one about the role that super spreaders are playing in transmission of the coronavirus. Gregory writes, I'm hearing that so-called super spreaders are responsible for much of the contagion and that many of the people who have the virus are not particularly likely to spread it to others. Any reliable word on this yet? Well, thank you, Gregory, for that thoughtful uh, question. And in fact, uh, it is one that is front and center for many of us trying to understand the epidemiology of this disease. We do have evidence that this disease is a little bit like SARS and MERS, and yet also a little bit different. That more, more like SARS and MERS is that there are these individuals that appear to put out a lot of virus. And given in the environment they might be in, such as an indoor environment, they can transmit to many, many people. Now, where this virus is different than MERS and SARS is that most of the people who transmit the virus with those two coronavirus diseases transmit usually by day six, seven, or eight, but not early in their infection and clearly not before they become clinically ill. As we all know, many of the individuals who transmit this virus do so when they're pre-symptomatic, not yet sick, or potentially completely asymptomatic, and that uh, they then transmit in a way that continues in through the early course of their illness. Now, why some individuals transmit a lot is just unknown. We don't know why. Um, It's not because they're more clinically ill. Uh, It's just unclear. To give you some sense of this, uh, two epidemiologists, uh, colleagues and friends from Hong Kong, uh, wrote a piece in uh, the New York Times on June 2nd. Uh, Dylan Adam and Ben Colling uh, wrote a piece called Just Stopping the Super Spreading. And in their study, 20% of all the COVID-19 cases they saw in Hong Kong accounted for about 80% of the transmission to new cases. This is remarkable. In addition, about 10% more of the cases accounted for the remaining 20% of transmission. Boy, if we only could know who those people were, and they had a little purple light that went on top of their head just before they're ready to transmit, we could do this pandemic in and overnight, but we can't. So one of the challenges that's come up with this whole issue is this is why people have been confused of what is the primary mechanism for transmission. When you look at droplet precautions and this idea that somebody has to be within a certain number of feet of you, if you're in a household where almost no one transmits or in a work setting where no one transmits, you would be very legitimate in saying, well, this has to be droplet because if we're aerosol, there'd be a lot more transmission. On the other hand, 
if you have a situation where you're transmitting to many, many different people, I mean, I could go through a whole series of outbreaks. Uh, one of the ones I'm very familiar with is where, you know, 94 of 216 employees on a single floor of a call center in Seoul, Korea, became infected after just one person working there was infected. I could go through a laundry list of these. Those clearly are aerosol-related events, meaning that there was virus floating in the air that had to hit a lot of people because this person wasn't even close to many of the people that got infected. And, and so this whole super spreader situation is about the individual who's shedding the virus, but also, again, indoors. We have virtually no major outbreaks associated with just outdoor activity. And uh, that, I think, is, is something that, you know, I, we continue to emphasize in terms of trying to minimize your risk. So to me, I come back to what has become affectionately known in this business as the, th as the three C's, closed spaces, crowds, and close contacts. We've got to avoid those. If you can do that, we can really reduce the risk of transmission. And we've got to understand why these super spreading events occur. And I call them events because it's the individual plus the environment they're in. But uh, you're right on the mark. Uh, this is a very different picture than we see with many, many infectious diseases. And unfortunately, I think it's one of the real reasons why we're seeing the epidemiology and the transmission as we are in, in such a, a rapid transmission model. Because those 20% of the people who transmit that account for 80% of the cases are doing so very, very well. So, Mike, I want to ask you about some comments that were recently made in the media. Uh, Ken Frazier, the CEO of pharmaceutical company Merck, made some comments about vaccines and about his concern that government officials and other pharmaceutical executives are overpromising on on vaccines. And CDC director Robert Redfield made comments about masks and the source of coronavirus outbreaks in the southern states. What did you make of these comments, Mike? These comments... I think are important in terms of context. And as the listeners here may hear about these comments, uh, you know, I'll try each week uh, to pick a couple of these out and, and share with you a perspective. First of all, uh, Ken Frazier, who as Merck CEO has been one of the really outstanding leaders uh, in the country in responding to COVID-19. Uh, I have nothing but the highest respect for Ken and the staff that he has around him, some of the best minds, particularly in the vaccine world, that are there. And Ken uh, did an interview uh, with uh, a professor from the business administration group at Harvard. And in that, he actually said, and I quote, that the COVID-19 vaccine hype that we're hearing from many right now is actually a grave disservice to the public. And what he was really talking about is not an anti-vaccine position at all, hardly that, but that promising these vaccines later this year could be really hurting our fight against the pandemic. And he says that because what it does, it gives people a sense something's coming, it'll be here soon, and that uh, we can kind of ignore, as he said, the common sense measures to slow the spread of COVID-19. And he laid out in very clear terms, uh, as he said, what worries me the most is that the public is so hungry, is so desperate to go back to normalcy, they're pushing us to move things faster and faster. Ultimately, if you're going to use a vaccine in billions of people, you better know what the vaccine does. 
And I, you know, you've heard me say this multiple times on this podcast is I want a vaccine more than I can tell you. But at the same time, I know it has to work, at least in a way that we all agree is at least minimally helpful, and it has to be safe. And when you look at the kind of activities that it takes to bring a vaccine to the market, um, you know, and Ken laid this out in his interview saying that it, you know, typically takes years or longer to develop vaccines. You know, Merck, as he said, won approval for its mumps vaccine after four years of research and development, and that was a record. And it took five and a half years to get the approval for the Merck's Ebola vaccine. And he described that in the last 25 years, pharma companies worldwide have developed only seven truly new vaccines. And Merck was responsible for four of them. Scientists have continued to work on HIV vaccine for decades to no avail, but he knows what he's talking about. So I, I hope that, you know, whether it's the business world, whether it's the public health world, whether it's the general public, we all hope for a vaccine that is safe and effective. But remember, that's not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy. And that we do understand that we are working hard to get to a point of having a safe and effective vaccine. But um, we have to be very, very careful not to overpromise because some people will feel like, well, I'm so close to a vaccine, it doesn't really matter anymore. Or number two, when we don't have that vaccine, uh, there will be such a response that will be incredibly negative about public health in general. And I think that's the key issue. In terms of the comments by Bob Redfield, director of the CDC, a colleague and a friend, um, I was a little bit surprised to see these comments. And I just want to lay them in context because, as you know, I, I believe CDC is a very, very important part of the public health response or should be in our country. And Bob uh, is leading that effort. But uh, he made three different comments in the past uh, couple of days that I'm a little bit surprised by. And I just want to add context. One, he said, if everyone wore a mask in four to eight weeks, we could drive this thing into the ground. And there are no data that supports anything like that. Again, remember the whole masking issue from CDC's perspective came about from the standpoint if I'm wearing a face cloth covering and I might be transmitting before I'm symptomatic, that this would stop some of the droplets from basically escaping. But the mask, as it's late, often called, wouldn't protect me. Now, you know, we recommend people go ahead, use your face cloth coverings, do it. But we also be mindful that we don't know how well they work, and there's reasons to challenge that they may work real well, uh, and that for therefore, it's still about distancing, distancing, and distancing. And I worry that this message that Bob just put out is so totally counterproductive because it basically makes it sound, all you have to do is mask and we're done. That negates the distancing issue. That would be so counterproductive. So I, I'm, I'm concerned about that comment, and I hope he surely explains it or walks it back a bit. I think that's really a challenge. The other comment, he, another one he made, he uh, commented yesterday that most U.S. counties are in a position to reopen their schools. And when you look at what's going on and what I just talked about, about house on fire in almost 40 states and many localities uh, where there's just no way they can start schools again, I don't understand how you can say that most counties are in a position to reopen their schools. Now, I'm taking that to mean full in-class participation. 
everybody's going to open a school somehow this fall, whether it's distance learning, whatever. But if we're actually talking about having everyone back in school, I think that this is a real challenge. And, and I hope I'm misinterpreting this comment. I'm taking it off of the media, obviously, and I think that that's, that's a challenge. And then the last comment he made today is he says that, and this was an interview he did with uh, the editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association today, and he said that basically northerners heading south for vacation may be to blame for surge in coronavirus cases, not state reopenings. And he commented, if you look at the South, everything happened around June 12th to June 16th. It all simultaneously kind of popped. And he said, you know, we're of the view that something else was the driver there other than reopenings, maybe Memorial Day and the activities there. Well, I have to tell you, there are many states uh, where a lot of people didn't go south for Memorial Day from the north. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, Texas and Florida, maybe, but not many of the other states. And again, I think this just causes more challenge to understanding the epidemiology, like somehow we could take it down there and this would never have happened but for northern virus entering. Well, the southern virus was there all along. You know, if it was going to pop, it didn't need the northerners to come down and put it in there. And that fundamental lack of understanding of the epidemiology of the disease concerns me because it points out that, oh, yeah, you know, we're okay, we reopened, but it was just keeping you guys out misses the whole point of why reopening in of itself was the challenge of all the young adults getting back into the bars, the restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I, I, I only bring this up. Uh, I know many of you on this uh, podcast, the last thing you want to do is hear controversy, but I worry about these statements because it goes to public health credibility. And right now we're under a lot of fire already for our credibility. And, uh, one is that, uh, you know, I can say right now, masking will not drive this thing into the ground in 48 weeks. That's just simply not true. And it really concerns me about the issue of enforcing and reinforcing distancing. Number two is the fact that uh, most counties are not in a position to reopen their schools right now. And this should be a county by county issue. But there are a lot of really red hot counties out there right now with transmission. And finally, you know, uh, the northerners heading to the south bring in this virus almost looks like it's a blame game issue without really a, trying to understand why did transmission occur. And I only need to understand why transmission occurs so we can stop it from happening again. And if we're going to lock down and bring back the economies of these local areas, we have to understand why it happened. And it was not because somebody came to visit. So with that, um, I, I, I hope that uh, these comments get clarified um, very soon. Any final thoughts today, Mike? Yeah, well, again, thank you everyone for being here. I know this is a long one. Um, and uh, for those who have not satisfactorily covered the school opening issue, I'm sorry, I will do more next week. Uh, this is one I hope just the idea sinks in of some of the principles we put forward. And, you know, in, in trying to come up with a closing, uh, I always find it uh, a, a wonderful gift to consider uh, all the positive, great things going on out there and uh, all the kindness that we talk about. And so beginning, this is for kids today. This whole podcast uh, really is about our schools and kids. 
Um, I couldn't help but uh, picking out a song that uh, is something that uh, my grandchildren would enjoy. And that's from the Kaboomers, a wonderful, wonderful source of great preschool music. And it's a song, I Love You song. And it was really created for preschoolers uh, that help children get excited about learning. And it goes, I love you, your button nose, your eyes, your ears, your knees and toes. I love you up to the sky, past the moon and stars so high. If you feel alone and scared, always know that I'll be there. Just like one and one makes two, you love me and I love you. I love you in every way, all you do and all you say. My love for you will always be deeper than the deep blue sea, even if you're sad or blue. It's because I love you, just like one and one make two. You love me, and I love you. I love you, your button nose, your eyes, your ears, your knees and toes. I love you up to the sky, past the moon and stars so high. If you feel alone and scared, always know that I'll be there. Just like one and one make two, you love me, and I love you. Again, uh, I want to thank all of you for being with us. Please keep up those acts of kindness. We are The pandemic of kindness is moving forward. I'm hearing from more and more of you that have had an opportunity to experience that kindness. And right now, we really need it. We really need it. Be understanding, be thoughtful, be sensitive, be patient. Listen, and most of all, believe. If you believe in kindness, I am certain this is going to make going through all of this such a much, much better experience. And as we would say to our kids, you love me and I love you. And I hope today, tomorrow, all the rest of the week to our next podcast, you never, ever, ever forget that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Osterholm Update. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. And be sure to keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu. The Osterholm Update is produced by Maya Peters, Corey Anderson, and Angela Ulrich.